All right, so um, this morning, before I start on uh, my sermon, um, I want to take just a brief moment of silence um, because a, a terrible thing happened in our state yesterday in Jacksonville. Um, we, I want to acknowledge the grief of the shooting that happened there just with a moment of silence. Um, for those of you that didn't see the news yesterday or this morning, three of our black citizens were shot dead outside a Dollar General at the hands of a white gunman who had swastikas on his rifle. And they're dead for no other reason than the color of their skin. And we're once again reminded that deep-seated racism still exists in this country, that many of our brothers and sisters of color endure daily fear. Yesterday, a historically black college narrowly escaped because of the strength of its security. So as we keep a minute of silence together now in recognition of the tragedy, I ask you to pray in your hearts for the victims and their families and for all others who have been made to feel afraid. Jesus, you are this dark world's only light and only hope. We pray for you to come in to the darkness with your light and comfort us and heal us. Please bless us as we open your word together. Please nourish us, Lord, with the truth of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These words have been the rumbling so far in John's gospel of a major theme that was coming, 
of an explosion of light. And it finally arrives here in chapter 9. The miracle of chapter 9 is a blind man seeing. A man who has only ever walked in darkness, suddenly having his whole world filled with light. The miracle is also a demonstration from Jesus that proves his words true. I am the light of the world. It's a light that comes into the darkness and it divides people between those who love it and those who hate it, just as John said it would. And this first light, this Olympic torch of truth, lights a second torch of witness in this chapter, a torch of witness that is still not extinguished from the earth. So let's open together to John chapter 9 and see this miracle of light. It's page 895 of the church Bibles, the story that we call the healing of the man born blind, John chapter 9. And we're going to talk about all the light in this story. First, the creative power of light, then the divisive power of light, and finally, the contagious power of light. So first, we have the creative power of light. John says in chapter 9, starting in verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Everything we need to know about this miracle is in those words from the beginning. Jesus wanted his disciples to be sure that they knew what was going on, what this miracle was all about, and John wrote it down so we can know too. And we find that it's not actually primarily about sin in this case. Jesus does have a fair bit to say about the connection between suffering and sin, and we're going to talk about that a bit later on. But Jesus views their question here as really a bit of a distraction, and he redirects his disciples to the main idea that he wants them to grasp, which is all about light, about Jesus being the light of the world, verse 5, about the connection between light and power, because the work of God happens not in the night, but in the daytime. And then Jesus goes and performs a miracle of light, which is very much in the style of Genesis chapter 2. We remember that the first man, Adam, was made entirely out of mud. Actually, that's his name. Adam means dirt. Um, and here in verse 6, this blind man is repaired using that same raw material of mud. He was blind from birth, so in all likelihood, his eyes were not merely damaged, but deformed. Perhaps they were missing entirely, as sometimes happens. So this is not so much a miracle of healing as a miracle of creation. Something unmade is being made from scratch. The creator of eyes is here making a couple more using his original method. So we're thinking of Genesis. And while we're thinking about Genesis, we're irresistibly drawn to thinking about light, the first of God's works, the first good thing to exist in our universe. 
And that connection between creation and light is confirmed by the miracle itself, which is a healing from blindness. It takes a man who's only ever walked in darkness and floods his whole world with light. Jesus is the light of the world, and the light is creative. Jesus has divine creative power. So the man born blind has just a small part of his body recreated by Jesus, but in the process, his whole life is also recreated as something entirely new. So we know that if a child is born blind in modern America, that's one kind of tragedy. As parents, you grapple with the grief that your child will never see your face or play sports or drive a car or enjoy your favorite books or movies, along with countless other losses and deprivations. And he or she will suffer a much greater challenge to find acceptance, community, and work. And that's in a society that actually works hard to care for its blind people. How much worse for a son born into a first century Jewish home where on top of all those other hardships, blindness meant instant disqualification from all work reduced to a life of begging, instant disqualification from religious life to be categorized as a sinner with no remedy to be unwelcome in the synagogue or the temple, and along with that, instant disqualification from society too. The life of a blind man was really no life at all, just a life sentence. And so along with the restoration of his eyes, Jesus really gave this man a whole new start. Work options, worship options, social options, and marriage options. A chance of a life where before there was no life. So it is, as John said of Jesus in his prologue, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, second, let's observe the divisive power of light. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So in Genesis 1, after God made light, the very next thing God did was to separate the light from the darkness. And here again in John chapter 9, we find the light doing that work of separating, of dividing up the human family into those who love and welcome it and those who despise and reject it. Now here in this case with these Pharisees, they were arguing amongst themselves between two aspects of their own law, of their own tradition. This was an in-house debate. So today we have access to many, many Jewish teachings, which is so much more than just the Hebrew Bible we know. And one of the main uh, collections of Jewish teachings comes from uh, the second century AD, where a scribe called Judah the Prince collected and compiled thousands of pages of Jewish teachings into a book called the Mishnah, which is today also known as the Oral Torah. The Mishnah contains the teachings of the rabbis and sages who came after Moses, interpreting and expanding on the Torah. But these teachings are considered today by Orthodox Jews to be from Moses. They're considered that they were also given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses, then handed down by word of mouth until those later rabbis wrote them down. And so they are considered to be as authoritative as Holy Scripture itself. We don't believe that, but the Orthodox Jews do. And the Pharisees very possibly believed the very same thing in the first century too, because that's certainly the way they treated those secondary words, as reverently as the Bible itself. 
So what we find when we read the Mishnah are a whole bunch of extra Sabbath regulations. You can't carry things on the Sabbath. You can't take more than a certain number of steps on the Sabbath. You can't make clay on the Sabbath. It's considered work. And you can't heal on the Sabbath unless it's a life-threatening emergency. That's not in the Torah. That's in the Mishnah, in the oral law. And Jesus broke at least three of these Sabbath regulations when he made mud, healed a man, and told him to walk all the way to Siloam and back. On the other hand, the Mishnah also has a lot to say about miracles and the way that miracles point to the power and authority of God. The rabbis were no strangers to miracles in general. Moses did miracles. Elijah did miracles. There's some evidence that first century rabbis and priests could work some miracles of healing, like casting out demons or even healing blindness. But here's the kicker. They were known to be miracles, some miracles that were much harder than others some that were too difficult for ordinary saints. No one in history had ever done them, and the sages identified three miracles in particular that they said would be specific signs of the coming of their Messiah. Number one, the cleansing of a Jewish leper. Because Elisha the prophet had healed Naaman the Syrian of leprosy, but no Jewish leper had ever been miraculously cleansed. Number two, the casting out of a demon from someone who was mute, because demons could be cast out, but you needed to command them by name, and a mute person could not name his or her own demon. And number three, the healing of a man born blind. Certain kinds of blindness could be healed, but as our hero correctly says in verse 32 of John 9, never since this world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. That's true. And the rabbis had said the same thing in the Mishnah, and they had explicitly identified this miracle as a sign of the arrival of their Messiah. And Jesus, we know, did all three of these so-called messianic miracles from the Mishnah. So this was why the Pharisees were in hot debate. On the one hand, there's obvious Sabbath breaking. On the other hand, we have a very significant and special miracle. Neither of those things relates directly to the Hebrew Bible, but they both related directly to the Mishnah, the oral Torah. And in fact, the very existence of both of those things in one man kind of smashed their oral Torah to pieces because one of those two parts of it had to be wrong. Either the Sabbath rules were wrong and making clay was not in fact sin, or the Messianic miracles were wrong and a sinner could do them. But one part or the other had to break, and with it, the whole oral Torah kind of got broken as being God's authoritative word because we know God cannot lie. So you can see what a big problem this would have been for these Pharisees, why they debated it so hotly, why they were divided amongst themselves, why they blustered and went around in circles asking the same questions over and over again, looking for a way out of this fix and why, in the end, the majority of them settled on the position of digging in their heels and denying the truth. In verse 24, they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. But that's deceptive. They didn't know that. That's the very thing they've been debating in verse 16. And the man who was formerly blind and had none of their kind of education speaks so much more clearly and honestly in verse 30 when he says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That is faithful biblical truth. Every word of that is correct. 
And with it, he cuts right through all their bluster and spin. But then for his pains, he gets the response of verse 34. You were born enough to sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So we see that the minds of these Pharisees are already made up. They're no longer listening. They're no longer open to diverse opinions. And they're no longer interested in the data. And so no longer teachable, they say in their own words. Would you teach us? This then is a portrait of bias. We're stopping here. No more learning. No more data is welcome. This is our position now forever. And since no understanding or system that's built by our fallen minds can ever be completely right or true, this bias is the sure sign of, of a fool. An unteachable spirit makes nothing but bad decisions, does nothing but harm, and will be punished with many blows. Never allow your heart to become unteachable. The light divides the lovers of truth from the prisoners of bias. So we've seen the creative power of light and the divisive power of light. Now finally, there's the contagious power of light. John makes a strange little comment in verse 7 when he notes that the pool of Siloam means scent. Why does he bother to tell us that? Obviously because it's important to our understanding of this story. The blind man was sent to the pool in answer to the command of Jesus to go, which is the same command that God gave to Abraham. And as the story unfolds, we see that the man was also sent into the world as a witness, a witness to the light. He doesn't really have much say in the matter. <laughs> he gets taken by his friends to the Pharisees in verse 13, and he gets asked by them what he thinks about Jesus in verse 17, to which he replies, he is a prophet. And that seems perfectly honest, the best answer he could give at the time on the basis of the evidence he had. Then after his parents have been grilled, the man gets a second bite at the apple in front of the Pharisees, and the second time his testimony is clearer and even more compelling, as we just saw. Then after two rounds of brave and faithful honesty, Jesus finds the man in verse 35 to tell him the whole truth, that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah who is God in the flesh, and the man responds with instant faith and worship. This is hardly to be found in the Gospels. This man is one of the very few among the children of Israel to respond to Jesus so wholeheartedly and so quickly. He's a real hero in this story, a model of faith. And we see him in the process of becoming a light himself. He's already shone brightly in front of the Pharisees before he knew the whole truth. How much more do we expect his testimony and his faith to be a bright witness from this day forward? So he started the story as a blind man, both physically and spiritually, but he allowed his eyes to be open in both ways, so that in quick succession, his physical world was flooded with light to transform his earthly life, and his heart was flooded with light to transform his eternal life. What a good day this was for him. He went from being a nobody in the streets to a person standing in front of the Pharisees, and then from a person to a prince in the family of God, all in one day. What a good story he had to tell, and what an important witness he would become to the true identity of Jesus. In verse 3, Jesus declared the very purpose of his blindness to be that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in him, Jesus lit a flame of witness that is still burning brightly in our world today. The light gives light, and the light light gives, gives light.
But for our part, we have to be willing to be used by God for that purpose of witness, which in this man's case and in ours usually involves a good deal of suffering. So now I want to close with a brief word about suffering as it relates to sin. This was the disciples' opening question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And the question comes once again out of the Mishnah, which states there is no suffering without sin. That's a statement that must be true on a global level because Genesis 2 says that there was no suffering before there was sin and Genesis 3 traces all subsequent suffering to the cause of sin. So on that level, there is no suffering without sin. But the rabbis clearly went a step further to say that individual suffering must then be a punishment for individual sin. It's why the disciples asked their question to Jesus and why the Pharisees declare in verse 34, you were born in utter sin. The blindness is what proves it. But that's a step that Jesus flatly denies in verse 3 when he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Of course, that's not to say that they were sinless because no one is without sin. But Jesus means that to trace the cause of his blindness to individual sin is wrong-headed. That's a false connection. It's not the way God works. And on the other hand, it's not just a random lottery either. Some Christians today subscribe to the stuff happens philosophy of life and say, well, statistically, about one in every 2,000 children is born blind and I just got unlucky. Maybe that kind of thinking helps us not to get mad and just to get on with it. But Jesus doesn't agree with that either. It's not just stuff happens, because in this case, he declares that God did do it for a reason, as part of a plan. So then against both of those false perspectives on our suffering, our afflictions and our disabilities, the useful question that we can ask of them is, God, how can I use this for your glory? God, how can I use this for your glory? If we have been assigned some physical challenge, like a disability, a missing part of our body, or some other source of daily suffering and pain, then we can say two things. It is only for a short while, and it is pregnant with opportunity. It's only for a short while because all our ills will be healed in heaven. I am sure that the deaf will hear in heaven. The blind will see in heaven. The amputees will have all their limbs in heaven. Sometimes people do question this because the body they have been assigned feels so much more them that, that it's uh, hard to imagine being at home in a different one. And the victories they have won in that body are so hard fought that it seems dishonoring or even unwelcome to have the need of those victories taken away. But nevertheless, I do believe it will be so, that all resurrection bodies will hear, see, walk, dance, digest foods, and have all the pieces the Creator intended, doing all the things He designed them to do. More, in fact, than, than any of us can presently do. So the suffering is temporary when viewed in the light of eternity, but maybe also even more temporary than that, Jesus proves that he can heal anything at all right now, this very day. He can make brand new bodies out of mud if he wants to, even manufacturing a brand new pair of eyes. Our full healing is part of the birthright of our forgiveness. And sometimes Jesus grants some of that inheritance early, and we're welcome to ask him for it. We're welcome to keep asking him if that's what we want. Perhaps he will do it for us this very day. Do for us what he did for the man born blind. 
And our question then, God, how can I use this for your glory, will be answered in our full and present healing, followed by our living witness to his grace and power. May it be so, Lord Jesus. If this is what you seek, then come and find the prayer ministers during communion today. Have them pray for you. May this be the day of your healing and release. But if that's not the plan, or if it's not your plan, if you don't look for that, or if we, may, if we remain a little longer unhealed, then the right question still remains, God, how do I use this for your glory? And then our answer will be found in our faith, in our courage, in our patient endurance, and in our hope of eternal life. And these things can shine just as brightly as witnesses to the true light as the mighty miracles can, and in God's sight are at least as precious. Either way, what began as a tragedy, an affliction, a devastation of our flesh is turned into glory, is turned into a noble badge of dignity if we let it be as God has said and let him use our lives as he intends. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. It divides and separates the unteachable who hate it from the humble who love it and come into it. It makes them, in turn, flames of witness to the true light and in time will recreate them as perfect children of the one who called out into the darkness. Let there be light. Amen. Please stand. I'm going to invite the leaders of the prayer.